Will you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the very first chapter of the Gospel according to Mark, where we are going to be reading together verses 1 through 8 this morning, though our focus will primarily be just verse 1. That's Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, again focusing primarily upon just the first verse. And you can locate that passage on page 980 in your Pew Bibles. This morning we are beginning what will undoubtedly prove to be a rather lengthy series, looking together at the entirety of the gospel according to Mark. And perhaps you have noticed, if not this morning, then at other times in the past, that very rarely will you hear me refer to the gospel accounts as the gospel of Matthew or the gospel of Mark or of Luke or of John. There's a reason for that. To begin with, if you look at the headings of themselves in your Bibles, you're going to notice that that is not the way that they are ever recorded for us in Scripture. Often I think we glance at those headings and we see the names of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John in, in somewhat of a larger, bolder font, bolder print. And having our eyes averted from the entire heading, we miss the smaller print that says, The Gospel According To. It always precedes the name that's given. So that's certainly one reason why it is that I always try at least to be careful about the way that I refer to really any book of the Bible. It is the right way, the correct way. That's one reason. There is, however, another reason. In the four Gospels, we have four separate accounts of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's really not the same thing, is it? Though the gospel accounts themselves are similar, they are four separate accounts of the life, the the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. You understand, it's not Matthew's gospel. It's not Mark's gospel. It's not Luke or John's gospel. It does not belong to the Apostle Paul or to Peter. The gospel... That is, the good news is all about Jesus Christ. And it is so much more than just another biographical story or another simple account of his life and his times. It's so much more than just another bland retelling of history. As the Apostle Paul tells us in the first chapter of his letter written to the Romans, it, that is, the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. You understand? And so from the very outset this morning, I want us to know that we are ta- what we are talking about is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're talking about the fact that Jesus Christ came to this earth in flesh as a man. That is, he condescended from glory to us. God became incarnate in order to come or to become, to be what you and I and all of Adam's progeny are incapable of being. Perfectly righteous. He suffered a lifetime of suffering and humiliation 
And he willingly died in our place upon the cross. He received upon himself the justified wrath of Almighty God against our sin in our place. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. We are told he ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven, where Scripture tells us very clearly that he now lives to intercede for us. And Beloved, I want to tell you this morning, it ought to fill us with joy to hear it and to know it and to embrace that glorious truth by faith. It, it truly ought to be our only comfort in both life and in death. To consider the gospel of Jesus Christ and what it truly is and what it truly means for sinners like you and like me. The truth is we must know and treasure the gospel. And we must know and believe first and foremost that the gospel and Christianity for that matter really is all about Jesus. And even that notion seems to have fallen out of fashion in the church of Jesus Christ today. We foolishly believe, and many of us have heard, that Christianity is all about our own personal stories. Now please understand that when I say that, I'm not in any way downplaying that when confronted with the glorious truth of the gospel, that we are indeed transformed. We are changed. That God does a work in us. That we are translated from life unto death, from darkness into light. That is, of course, all absolutely true. However, I'm making the distinction that Christianity is not primarily all about us as individuals. It's not all about our own spiritual journeys or our own personal odysseys. It's not all summed up in me and Jesus. Contrary to popular, popular belief, Christianity is not all about our own little neighboring kingdom somehow working together under the big sky kingdom of God. The gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ. And we desperately need to hear that in the current evangelical climate. We need to be reminded of it again and again and again. In fact, one could easily make the case that that is exactly what happened in the Reformation. At its foundation, the Reformation was a call to depart from man-made, personally constructed righteousness, man-made religion, and to flee back into the loving arms of Jesus and the comfort of His Word. It was a call away from mere external morality masquerading as faith into justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone because of the grace of Almighty God alone that has been so so clearly revealed to us in His Word alone. Therefore, God alone receives all of the glory in the salvation of fallen man. And beloved, if we are to engage in a call back to the basic tenets of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then I want to tell you this morning that I can think of no greater place for us to go than than where we are going to be 
looking together for the foreseeable future. We must know this gospel as it is revealed to us in the pages of God's holy word. And as it is revealed to us here in the pages of Mark's account of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you, the gospel is shocking. And it is radical. And at times it's disturbing. It will challenge us. It will confront us to face the difficulties that might exist in trying to fit so much of modern day evangelicalism into its current Christian parameters. But here in the gospel according to Mark, we will hear loud and clear the gospel of Jesus Christ and we will be adjusted according to its precious truth. Beloved, the heart of Christianity is not the church. It's not our building. It's not even its people. It's not our ways and our traditions. It's not your own or my own personal regiments of morality that really are at the heart of Christianity. It's not your Bible reading plan. It's not your church attendance. It's not your devotional life. It's not even your service. The heart of Christianity is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's His Word. His work, His life, His death, His resurrection. It's not all about you. It's not even all about us. It's all about Jesus Christ. And so I hope that in the weeks to come that you will join me in really digging into this wonderful account of the Lord Jesus Christ and His gospel That is the gospel according to Mark. And it's my sincere hope and my prayer that as we do, that we will be driven to an even greater hunger for not only this singular book of the Bible, but really for the entirety of the revelation of Almighty God itself that has been so graciously given to us in His Word. So I'd ask you to please follow along with me in your Bibles this morning now as I read from the Gospel according to Mark. Again, chapter 1, I'll read verses 1 through 8, though we will focus this morning on verse 1. Hear now the inerrant and infallible Word of God. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, 
There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful for the opportunity that we have to look to your word this morning. We pray that you would clear our hearts and our minds of those things that distract us, that we might give our undivided attention to your holy word and being those who hear your word through the power of your spirit, that we might be transformed by that word so that we live more and more for your glory and your glory alone. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, just before we begin to dig in here into the gospel according to Mark, I think it would be good and prudent for us to at least consider a few brief things here about this, the history of the gospel according to Mark at the outset of our look together. There have been many who have wrongly claimed that Mark's account of the gospel of Jesus Christ is merely an abridgment of Matthew's gospel account. In other words, according to this wrong-headed theory that Mark is, out, is setting out to do with the book that bears his name, what he's setting out to do is simply give us a condensed version of what Matthew had already written concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. And though many who held to that very, that very position in the storied history of the church are men that we would perhaps find to be orthodox in the bulk of their theology. Men even like Augustine, for example. We can now say that most have become convinced that they are flat wrong concerning the origins of the gospel according to Mark. Mark is not an abridgment of Matthew. Though I would say that we can at least understand why it is that Augustine and so many others may have felt that way. Mark is very clearly the shortest of the four gospel accounts. Mark's account seems to lack some of those vivid details and even the dialogue itself that makes up so much of the other accounts. By my count, Mark is made up of about 660 verses all contained within just 16 chapters. And 606 of those appear in at least some form in Matthew's account. 380 of those appear in Luke's account. So we can at least understand why some felt that way about Mark. However, as I said, it's now widely accepted that both Matthew and Luke actually borrowed from Mark and not the other way around. Mark's account is considered to be the oldest of the gospel accounts. We know that Mark was probably writing sometime just before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. We know it had to be before it because Jesus prophesies specifically about it being in the future in this account. The frequent references in his account of suffering Persecution, even martyrdom, seemed to point to a time and to a place associated with the Emperor Nero's persecution of Christians in Rome. We know that began sometime around 
A.D. 63 to 65. We also know that Mark was a very close contemporary of the Apostle Peter. And though he did not simply abridge Matthew, much of what Mark writes, he writes as the interpreter of the Apostle Peter. Sinclair Ferguson tells us in his very helpful little book, if you want a good book on just a a basic Bible study of the book of Mark, Sinclair Ferguson has a book called Let's Study Mark. And he says in that book that sometime around A.D. 140, Papias, who was the bishop of the church at Hierapolis, recorded something that he had heard from an old contemporary. He wrote, Mark, having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately whatever he remembered of the things said and done by the Lord, but not, however, in order. So we can see and we can agree that Mark is not simply repeating what he read in Matthew. He himself was an eyewitness to some of it. And the bulk of it is known to have lying behind it the apostolic authority of the Apostle Peter. Scripture itself tells us that Peter traveled with John Mark. We have here many of the divinely inspired records of the Apostle Peter's being with Jesus Christ from the moment of his baptism until his ascension. Its authority as one of the Gospels was accepted, it was accepted into the canon of sacred scripture very early and it was never questioned. It was accepted from the very beginning. Many scholars have compared Mark's gospel account to the sermon that was preached by Peter in Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through 43. And for good reason. Beloved, I want to encourage all of you to take time as we begin our look uh, through this book together in your own personal uh, time in Scripture. Take time to read through Acts 10, 34 through 43 and see the way that it fits perfectly with this sermon. This mark fits perfectly with the sermon. You're probably at least somewhat familiar with that narrative from Acts 10. A centurion, a Gentile named Cornelius, who we are told feared God and who had taught his family to fear God, is told in a vision to send Simon to send to Simon the Tanner's home by the seaside for a man named Peter. Peter himself is told in a dream that these men are coming, and he has that famous vision associated with the giving of the gospel to the Gentiles with that great sheet being lowered from the heavens containing an assortment of unclean animals and birds and reptiles. And a voice calls out and tells Peter to rise up and to kill and to eat. Peter responds saying, By no means, Lord. I've never eaten anything that's common. And he, of course, receives the response that what God has called clean, no man is to call common. He then goes with the men, and beginning then with verse 34, Peter gives a sermon that could very easily serve as an outline to the 16 chapters that are going to be before us for the foreseeable future. So take some time during this week and look at those words there in Acts because I can think of no better preparation for us for the weeks that are yet to come. And now having given you just a little bit of the history behind the gospel according to Mark, I want to tell you this morning that there is a much more important question 
that we must face here at the outset of our look together at this gospel according to Mark. It is a question, the answer of which cannot and must not be ignored. That question is this. Why did Mark write his account of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And I want to tell you, beloved, the way in which we answer that question is going to have a profound impact on what it is that we must now do with what we find here. It will impact the way in which we, as the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, approach the living of our lives under the sun. Why did he write it? Why should we know it? Was it simply to just have his part in history by retelling a very well-known, very well-loved story? Did he write it as to say, come one, come all, sit at Grandpa Mark's feet and just listen as I spin a good yarn? Was it so that he could call upon the people of God to carry out character studies of those involved in this story in order to find the, the secret hidden key to living the Christian life? Was it to set up Jesus as your great moral example to serve as your model for righteous living? Well, beloved, I do not think so. His purpose for writing this letter is there in the very first verse of this account of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want you to look closely with me at what he says. The beginning of of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If we're not careful, we skip right past those opening words and we get busy looking to John the Baptist. We'll get to John next week. But beloved, I hope that you can see that what Mark opens with here really ought to be difficult for us to just skim past. Mark is saying a mouthful with these 12 words. We could easily stay here for quite a while. Do you see that here? This is the good news about Jesus Christ. That's why he's writing this account. Because nothing matters like this matters. Nothing. What you are going to hear in this book of the Bible is the good news concerning the Christ of Almighty God. And it is life-changing information. As I mentioned to you at the very start of this sermon, the heart of Christianity is Jesus Christ. It is the revelation of Almighty God to us. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that truth cannot be brushed aside. You must know it before you embark on a study of healing and the other miracles. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It is a truth that hits us where we live and it does not leave anyone unaffected. Jesus is the long-awaited, promised one of Israel. It was of Him that the prophets looked towards with hope and spoke of so longingly. He is the Messiah. 
Beloved, do you see the implication of this very truth that it has upon your life? If what Mark is going to tell us is true, then we must bow before King Jesus. We must long for the Savior, Jesus. We must sing out praises to the captain of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what Christianity consists of. It's not your way. It's not my way. It's not our ancestors' ways. It is Jesus' way or it is no way. And I want for us to come to grips with that very truth from the beginning. And it's not just any Jesus that Mark points us towards. It's not just any Savior. Mark is writing in the context of a Hellenistic age which was full of many Saviors. But he is rebutting that idea here with these opening words. All paths do not lead to peace and to reconciliation with God. All paths do not lead to the forgiveness of sin. All paths do not lead to the glory of heaven. It is only through the truth that Mark is going to share with us regarding this Jesus, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that we could ever hope to find the cure for what truly ails us. Beloved, do you see the importance of that truth? We must see it. We live in a day and an age where not only are there many saviors, but we live with many false notions of Jesus. And so we have to ask. In light of what Mark's saying, we have to ask, is your Jesus simply a Jesus who is serving the highest level of morality, the highest level of morality example of the legalist? Or is he the perfect tan, healthy, well-fed Jesus of the prosperity gospel? Is he the cruel judge who's coming to crush even his own people because of their willful, sinful behavior of the fundamentalist? Is he an idol of your own vain imagination? A Jesus who submits to your definitions and to your terms? Or is he the Savior, Redeemer, the humble one, exalted and powerful, Jesus, the Son of God that we find here in Mark? Is he Jesus Christ, the Son of God? The Jesus whose life and whose words transforms the stony hearts of men. The Jesus whose life was prophesied from the very beginning in the garden. The Jesus who promised that upon his ascension, he would send his own Holy Spirit to comfort and to guide us as his people. The Jesus who would give his life as a ransom for many. The Jesus who would rise triumphant over sin, death, and the devil. The Jesus who would ascend to the right hand of the Father and live to intercede for us. To sanctify us. 
to sanctify our feeble works and prayers and love. It is this Jesus that Mark will bring and is even now bringing before us in the word of God. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And encounters with this Christ, as I've said many times from this pulpit, leave no one unchanged. One is brought from death to life. Another is pushed even further into embracing the death. That is the reality for the one content to remain the enemy of God. He is the divine Christ, the Son of God, the long-expected Jesus. And beloved, we must understand that his divinity, which Mark points out so clearly for us here, even as he opens this account, is really, as J.C. Ryle notes, the citadel and the keep of Christianity. It is his divinity that lies behind our hope and his infinite satisfaction for our sin. He cannot satisfy for us as a mere man. He had to be fully man and fully God. He must be divine. It's here that we find reason to rejoice in his atoning work for sinners like us. With the divinity of Jesus Christ, we stand upon an immovable rock, assured of who and what we are now, united to him by God's gift of faith. Without it. He becomes just another guru in a vast sea of gurus, another great teacher who may have had a way with words, but who quite simply cannot satisfy the just demands of the holy law of God for us. And do you notice that Mark uses really, I think, an awfully familiar opening with the words, the beginning. Have you ever noticed it? He does not open with who Mark is because in light of what he is about to say, it doesn't matter who he is. He needs to tell us about Jesus Christ, the Son of God and His Gospel. Does it remind you of another book of sacred scripture? We are so often reminded in the New Testament of those opening words of the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Mark wants us to think on those words. He wants for you and I and for all of God's people to really ponder and to meditate upon the glorious truth that the Bible begins with the story of creation. In the beginning, God created. It's one of the great bookends, if you will, to all of history. The history of the creation, both recorded as well as that which still remains future. After that bookend then, bookend then, is the story that we all know well. Creation has fallen. Paradise has been lost. Our first pardon, parents in the garden, sin, and all of mankind falls with them. And it sends shockwaves and destruction and chaos and death through the very core of creation itself. Everything is marred. Nothing is left unaffected. The creation itself suffers and dies. 
We see it immediately, don't we? We see it in the sin of Cain as he takes the gift of life away from his own brother. It's there with the eradication of Noah's entire generation. It was there with the slavery of Israel in Egypt. It's there in the wilderness. It's there in the land of Canaan. It's there as the blood flows down the altar in the tabernacle. It's there in the book of Judges. It's reflected upon in the Psalms and the Proverbs and the wisdom literature of sacred scripture. It's there in the sin of Israel as they chase after the gods of other nations. It's there with the kings of old. It's there in the pleas of the prophets. It's there in the captivities. It's there in the silence of Almighty God for 400 years. It's there in the wicked edict of Herod. Fallenness. Sin and the consequent wages of that sin. Death. And of course, I'm only scratching the surface here. But the story is certainly of sin and its wages and its need of redemption. Redemption by the promised one. The true sacrifice who will come and end all sacrifices. The Messiah. And in light of that, Mark says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Bible begins with the story of creation. And that creation falls. And the next great divider on that great bookshelf, the gospel, begins with the story of recreation through redemption. Do you understand? The Old Testament tells us of paradise lost. Adam in his sin is driven into the wilderness. And Mark tells us of a new beginning. The arrival of the fulfillment of our hope. Paradise regained by the second Adam. The last Adam. The Lord Jesus Christ. Who does not and who cannot fail. It is here, beloved, that we are confronted with the Son of God and everything that His arrival into this world to fulfill that promise and show us the true substance of all of the shadows which preceded Him stand for. And so I ask you this morning, beloved, are you ready to be confronted by this Jesus? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Are you ready to look full into the revealed face of Jesus Christ? Are you ready to have challenged all your preconceived ideas about what Christianity is truly all about as the Word of God opens up to you this Jesus Christ, the only Son of God? Because that is what we are facing as we stand at the precipice of this gospel according to Mark. The Heidelberg Catechism answers this question in its opening lines. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Many of us know that answer by heart. That I with body and soul both in life and in death am not my own. But belong to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. 
who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life, makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live unto him. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it is this very Jesus that Mark will be revealing to us in the weeks to come. Will you come and be led to worship him in spirit and truth as Mark reveals to us the Lord Jesus Christ the Son of God. Amen? Let's pray.